0: How are we doing, church? Are we okay? Yeah. Come on, ready for the word of God? Yeah. Good, 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 good. If you're here for the first time this morning, uh, or, or relatively new, my name is Sean and I'm part of the team here. Um, I'm not the senior leader, that's a, a man that has much less hair than me, um, but he is a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, I believe him and his wonderful wife have been on holiday all week, and I believe it's coming up to their 30th wedding anniversary, which is amazing. So. Hopefully they're not watching this morning, they're switched off somewhere and uh, enjoying time together, but I have a sneaky surprise that I will not be surprised if they're watching uh, as well. So if you are, happy anniversary, guys, hey. We're coming around uh, the Word of God this morning, it's a one-off sermon, and just really excited to uh, share the Word of God uh, with you and uh, to you, and we're looking at one of the Gospels, uh, one of the stories in the Gospel, and this morning I thought it would be apt, considering the day, that we would look at uh, an amazing woman uh, within Scripture, within the story of Jesus, and uh, how she shows us something about the extravagance of worship, the extravagance of worship, and um, this woman uh, is going to show us some uh, real key principles of what it means to bring a fragrant offering before Jesus Christ. And, and my prayer and my hope is that as we explore her, as we look into uh, this story, that Jesus will come and meet with you wherever you find yourself. Amen? Yes, right. Come on. Have you got a Bible with you? Yeah. Okay, just three of us with Bibles in church. Anyone else got Bibles, hey? Anyone got a real Bible in the room? Yeah. Wow! <laughs> look at this. We've got two people who are going to get an extra mansion in heaven. It's a joke. Uh, Matthew 26 is where we are going. Matthew 26, and um, we're going to be reading from verse 6 to 13. <clears throat> I'm going to give a little context to this in a moment, tell you what's happening here. Uh, this is a story that's replicated in the other Gospels as well, and uh, we'll, we'll look at what they say uh, as well as this today. And uh, I love this story. I've never preached from it, so it is my first time preaching from this story, but... Um, uh, I think it's going to be uh, a fun one. Matthew 26, verse 6 through to 13. I'm, I'm going to read it out. So just take in these words and uh, allow the Spirit of the Lord to speak to you through the reading of His word this morning. From verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' head. He was reclining at the table when the disciples saw this they were indignant why the waste why the waste they asked this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money could have been given to the poor aware of this jesus looked to them and he said why are you bothering this woman she has done a beautiful thing to me the poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me when she poured this perfume on my body She did it to prepare me for a burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Should we pray? I'm going to pray a really quick prayer. You ready? You ready, church? Come on, you can be vocal this morning. You can speak back to me. It's okay. Here we go. Um, Let's pray. Jesus, help us waste everything for you. Amen. I told you it was going to be quick, didn't I? So um, we're reading from the Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. The New Testament kind of depicts the start of the church, some of the letters to the first churches that were around, but also these first four books, they kind of show us the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus. We see everything from his creation, his birth, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, and to his ascension to heaven. And we're reading towards the back end of one of the books from Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. This story we've just read about a woman who came and broke an alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus and poured out a very expensive perfume all over Jesus. It is a story that is also replicated in three of the other um, New Testament Gospels. Uh, We see this story happening again. And I find it really interesting when we look at this story that we start to see different narratives come about as we look at the different accounts. It's really important, church, that when we're reading the Bible, we look at the context of where it's coming from, but we also match it up to what other people saw. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John all saw very similar things, but they perhaps saw them from a different understanding and a different eyesight. And here we have one story where in this story, Matthew 26, the woman is nameless. We don't get much detail about her. All we get is that Jesus is with his disciples at a place uh, who is a house of Simon the leper. That's all we really get. We see this amazing act of worship, this extravagance come from her, but all we understand is there's a nameless woman and the person of Jesus, a few disciples, a house, and then this perfume is broken over But if we go to John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, we see the same story, but we start to get a bit more clues to what's happening in the story. In fact, in John chapter 12, we start to see that this woman has a name, and her name is Mary. Everyone say Mary. Come on. So this woman's called Mary. Mary had been with Jesus a lot. She'd seen Jesus do amazing things. She'd walked around the, the countries with her. He'd seen, she'd witnessed him do lots of incredible miracles. And just before uh, this starts to take place, to give a little bit of context, let me tell you what happens in John chapter 11, just before this story. Mary has just gone through one of the biggest heartbreaking moments of her whole life. She knew Jesus. She's walked with him. She's seen him do amazing things. But her heart has just been... Completely shattered. Why? Because her brother has just passed away. Mary was left alone in in a town at the time, just outside of this place, Bethany, where we hear this story. And she had been mourning and grieving for four days because her brother had passed away, and she had longed for Jesus to come visit her so perhaps that he could do something, that he could heal her, that he could perhaps even resurrect her brother from the grave, that he could do the things that she's seen him do with her old eyes. And she'd been praying as her brother was on the deathbed on the way out. And she'd been asking and pleading and praying and sending uh, uh, messages out to Jesus. Jesus, you need to come quick. My brother's in a really bad state. And unfortunately, Jesus didn't get there on time. And her brother passed away. And on the night her brother passed away, they had the funeral, the ceremony. And They wrapped him in cloths and they put like a napkin over his face. They brought out an empty tomb and they placed him in the empty tomb. And then they rolled the stone in front of it as it was custom to do. And they started to mourn and grieve. And Mary started to become a little bit frustrated at the fact that Jesus had still not turned up. Where's Jesus in this moment of heartbreak for me? Where's Jesus in this moment of mourning? So she's praying and she's pleading, Jesus, please turn up soon. A day goes past. Two days, three days, four days, and then on the fourth day, in comes walking in as if nothing's happened. Jesus arrives on the scene and walks up and he finds this tomb, lots of different tombs, and one of them has Mary's brother inside. And she sees Mary weeping on the floor, mourning and grieving. Her heart is broken. She doesn't know where to turn. And she looks up and there four days late is Jesus. And she starts to look at Jesus and everything inside of her is thinking, why weren't you here four days ago? Why do not you heal my brother when he was ill? Where have you been? What have you been going on? And Jesus immediately, before she even speaks, he just starts to remind her of who he is. He says, just, just before you speak, I want to remind you something. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the coming king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. I'm the hope of the world, the light in the darkness. I need to remind you of who I am just in this moment. I know you're hurting. I know your heart's breaking. But let me just remind you for a moment of the power that I have. And I know your brother's just died. I know he's in the tomb. I know that you're mourning and grieving. But did you not know that I am the resurrection life, that I can bring life to dead things? And he says, just roll the stone out of the way quickly. And the disciples come and they start to shift this stone. And as they shift this stone, the smell comes out because this body's been there for four days. And Jesus starts to think about what he's going to do. And they're thinking he's going to go into the tomb. He's going to lay on our hands. He's going to do all these things. And he doesn't. He says, you can do those things. And these are all he says. You'll have heard these words before. Lazarus, come out. Her eeriness sets in. Everyone's looking at this, this dark cave, and then like a seam out of the mummy, out comes Lazarus in his wrapped up cloths with a napkin over his face, and I imagine he probably kind of hopped out at this point, point. and everyone, everyone's astonished. The disciples run over to Lazarus and they start to take the, the grave clothes that he's been, he's been dressed in and he's starting to breathe and he's starting to look around thinking what on earth's going on and suddenly there's this rejoicing and then the Bible says that this crowd starts to gather because they knew who Lazarus was and Lazarus was once dead but now he's stood here alive with breath in his lungs and he's breathing and speaking and looking and Mary there is absolutely astonished and she runs up to her brother, she hugs him and they weep in each other's arms. And then they start to walk towards Bethany. And when they get to Bethany, we read what we have just read. That they go into Simon the leper's house and they start to have food. And as you can imagine, it's filled with joy and fun and festivity because the one that was once dead, he's now alive. And not only is he alive, but he's sitting at the table with Jesus. Two things I want to really quickly bring to you just from John chapter 11. I'm not going to preach from John John 11. I'm going to get on to Matthew 26, but can I preach too many sermons to you really quickly, church? Is that okay? I find it fascinating when we look at John 11 and we see Lazarus, and there's two things that jump out of me that I just want to bring forth to you. Maybe it's someone in the room that needs to hear one or two of these things this morning. I find it really fascinating that in this situation, in John chapter 11, um, Jesus wants to bring to life that which is dead, and this person is uh, a person. He's in a tomb, and the tomb is concealed by a stone and when the stone is moved away, suddenly that which is concealed can be spoken into and dead things can come to life. Could it be by possibility or by chance that someone sat in the room and there has been things in your soul and your heart that you have concealed, that you have buried down and you have caused to be dead, but there is a Jesus who has come in this morning knocking on the door and saying, if you would just move away the stone from some of the dreams in your heart that you have died, from some of the memories in your heart that you have died, from some of the destinies in your heart that you have died and you have concealed, you don't want anyone to speak into them. If you would just Move the stone for a moment. Could it be that we believe in a Christ who is the resurrection power, who can bring dead things to life, who can speak into dreams and destinies that were spoken long ago, that have been buried and forgotten about, that he would bring life to them once again? Could it be that there is a Jesus this morning who is longing to speak into some of the things deep in your soul, even the things that you consider to be dead, that he would bring life to? Second thing I find fascinating in this story, Jesus came and when he arrived, he did the one thing that nobody else there could do. Isn't it interesting that he asked his disciples to move the stone? Isn't it interesting that he pleads with the disciples to remember who he is? is it an interesting that the disciples are the ones that go up to Lazarus and take off the grave clothes and start to cleanse him down and do the things Jesus could have done those things, but he chose not to? Instead, Jesus did the thing that nobody else there, the one thing that nobody else there could do. He brought the miracle, the resurrection power, the dead to life. Interesting picture there, isn't it? Perhaps that's a picture of the church. Perhaps there are some expectations on us for us to do the things that we can do and believe for God to do the things that we can't do. Perhaps so often in Christianity, we want the quick fix for God to turn up and do everything, right? Right? Revival is a beautiful thing, and I long for it to happen. You've heard me for years and years and years preach on this stage, longing for revival to come. But it is interesting that we read in Matthew, when the Great Commission comes, he tells us to go. He tells us to raise the dead. He tells us to make disciples. He tells us to preach the gospel. He tells us to cast out the demons. You see, I believe there's a beautiful picture in this story of John chapter 11 when we start to see the way of Jesus and the church, that actually we are not... Uh, we're not here to just plead for God to do things, but we have something to do ourselves. That we actually do need faith. We do need to move. We do need to go. We do need to enter out of this building into that world. We do need to speak the person of Jesus over every situation. And as we do that, as we take a risk, we will see Jesus do what we can't do, which is miracle upon miracle upon miracle. That he will bring dead, dead things alive. That he will come and do the things that we can't do, but he's waiting for us to do some things ourselves. I was speaking to a friend the other day, and we were speaking about spiritual disciplines. I love spiritual disciplines. I've been learning so much about them over the last few years, about prayer and fasting and worship and silence and solitude and meditation. And as I was speaking to my friend about this, he struck me with a line that has not left me since, this is about a month ago, and he said these words, I believe there is an argument for risk to be considered as a spiritual discipline. When was the last time you took a risk? I'll leave that one with you, eh? John chapter 11 ends. They walk to Bethany. They get to Simon the leper's house. Who's Simon the leper? Simon the leper's a really well-known man. If you look into... kind of background of this. He's a man that's been healed from leprosy from Jesus. He was known in the town of Bethany for being the one that had been touched by Christ. He'd walked through before and where no man wanted to go, someone who was outcasted for leprosy, Jesus was willing to step in and bring healing and bring life to this man's life. And he was known in the area for being Simon the leper, the one that once was a leper but is now completely clean because of the person of Jesus. There's another gospel story there, isn't there? And here we go, he sits in the house and he invites everyone in he's just as excited because he sees Lazarus walking down the street with everyone and he's just as blown away. He's like, come on in, let's have food. So he gets everyone in and they sat around the table. In fact, when we read Matthew 26, it says that Jesus was reclining at the table. What a beautiful thought and concept, right? That the King of Kings and the creator of the world would come and recline with sinners like you and me. That he would sit there and befriend us. That he would journey with us. He would do life with us. And he's reclining at the table and this bread and wine, and you've got Mary and the disciples, and it tells you in John 12 that Judas is there and some of the other people, and Martha's probably wandering around cleaning everything up, and she's pouring wine into the jars and just hoping everyone's having a good time, and uh, this there's loads of fun, there's loads of noise and energy, and it's really good time. Lazarus is talking about his experience of the last four days, can you imagine that? He's talking about what's just taken place in his life. He's absolutely shocked. Jesus is there laughing at all, thinking this is absolutely amazing. And the disciples are enjoying themselves. And then Mary does this thing that I see my mum do all the time. And I'm sure there's other mothers that do this. When you're out for a meal and you've got friends with you, you're coming towards the end of the meal. The mother just gently gets up and she gently walks away because she's going to pay the bill, hoping that no one else will know. But really everyone else knows that she's going to do that. And Mary does the same. She gets up and she just gently, quietly walks out and she goes into another room. Nobody notices. Nobody thinks anything of it. They just see uh, Mary leaving and and, and the, the party continues. Mary comes back in the room a few minutes later. But when she comes in this time, she's got this big wooden bowl. And in this bowl, there is water. There's water in this big wooden bowl. And then around her neck, she's got this necklace. And on this necklace, there's this beautiful alabaster jar. It's got no um, opening on the top, completely sealed from tip. And there is this perfume in her, in, in this alabaster jar. And she brings it. And nobody even noticed that she's come in holding anything. Nobody, everyone's having such a good time at this point. She just goes quickly. And it says Jesus is reclining at the table and she just gently kneels down beside Jesus and she just taps his feet. And Jesus, reclining at the table, he looks to her side and he, he sits up and he realizes that something's about to take place. So he, he sits up in his table and he, he turns to her and she just gets his feet. She places him in this basin of water and she just starts to wash his feet. At this point... Lots of people still haven't noticed around the table what's taking place, but Jesus has. Jesus' locked eyes with Mary at this point He's looking down at someone who he loves deeply, and he's seen her wash her feet, and then out of nowhere, there's a crash. Perhaps you've been at a restaurant before where the waiter or waitress has dropped the glasses, and everyone stops for a moment, Then there's that awkward cheer that nobody really likes. Well, that was one of those moments. You just cracked open this alabaster jar at the top, Fully broken the top, and as soon as she broke the top, the fragrance of this perfume started to come over the room. Everyone started to smell the most expensive prized possession she owns being. Cracked open in this place and suddenly everyone's attention knew something was taking place. Everyone stopped. There was a silence and a hush and they all turned to face Mary on her feet. And she didn't stop there. She then got the ointment. She got this alabaster jar. She picks it up and she just starts to pour it onto slowly onto the head of Jesus and then onto his shoulders and then down onto his feet. And she starts to waste and pour out this extravagant perfume. The smell is Everywhere. Let me give you some context of how much this perfume would have cost. In this day and age, it probably costs around 24,000 pounds. A little bit better than Dior or whatever, right? So much so that lots of women had these alabaster jars and they were so close to the women as a prized possession that even on the Sabbath day, they didn't need to take it off. It was the one thing that they were permitted to have at all times on them. It was the prized possession, part of a woman's identity and soul in that day and age. She pours it out. She starts to pour it out. She's weeping. In John 12, it says that she cried so much that she starts to wipe away the tears on Jesus' feet with her hair. And then out of nowhere, the disciples start to speak. And one of them in John 12, it says, his name is Judas. And he says these words, Why the waste? Why the waste? He starts to argue that she could have sold the perfume. 24,000 pounds could have been used in a much better way, according to the disciples at this point. And as Jesus starts to argue his case the other disciples start to chip in they go yeah that's true what a waste look at this perfume that you could have sold and you could have bought a house with this you could have gone on holiday with this you could have given it to the poor you could have done all kinds of different things with this money that you've just wasted and now look at it on a pool half of it in this water basin filled with dirt and then the other half is just dripping to the floor of this messianic rabbi that we followed what a waste why the waste you see outside of knowing Jesus You know our lives probably look a lot like a waste, right? A waste of time, a waste of effort, a waste of devotion, how we use our money, how we use our bodies, how we spend our time from the outside. It can look like a waste. Why the waste? I mean, I understand it, right? So people who Jesus is just a myth, or he's just a historical figure, or perhaps he's even just a liar, it looks like a waste. All of our time and effort, in fact, what we're doing this morning, some people would look at it and just go, you're wasting your time. Why are you gathering in a building on a Sunday morning and just singing some songs to someone that I don't believe is even real? I get it. I understand it. I could speak to people. We could walk out this street right now, and we could go have conversations on the street. We could tell them about our morning and their response. Accurately so to them could easily be, why the waste? Why are you wasting your time? What's the point? And here is some of the people that are saying the same thing to Mary. Why? Why the waste? Why the waste of your perfume? Why the waste of your offering? Why the waste of your worship? Why the waste of the time? Our lives can look like a waste, right? Let's just be honest about that. To some people, it will look so. And that's because the Bible says that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are lost. Everything that we do will look foolish. We've got to come accustomed to that. Some people aren't going to get our lives. They aren't going to get the way we speak. They aren't going to get the way we walk and the way we talk and the way we deal with things. Our lives may look foolish. They can look like a waste because in the world, sacrifice, it doesn't make sense, does it? We live in a world that is literally based around and dominated by power and gain and control, sacrifice and humility and devotion. It doesn't really make sense in a lot of things. But how many people know that nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God? Nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Our finances, the way we do life, our worship, our prayers, nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. You see, some of our greatest gifts will come out of that which we are actually willing to waste. Some of our greatest miracles will come from what the world looks like a waste of time. What do I mean by this? Well, I purely mean this. I believe that sacrifice is one of the greatest metrics. Of love. The devotion and what looks like wasted time can actually be some of the most valuable things we can do in our life. Sometimes that which we are willing to lay down for Jesus will truly reveal the healthiness of our hearts and the openness and posture to our surrender. And Mary has a choice in this moment. She can stop the extravagant offering she is bringing to Jesus because of the judgment and voices around her, or she can fix her eyes on the one who came to bring dead things to life. So often I found in my life, and I've only been following Jesus for what? 15 years. It's not long. Some of you have have done double that. and, And I know you've probably learned a lot more about me than life so far. But in the small time I've been following Jesus, trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, I found this. That sometimes when I've come to bring my greatest offerings, sometimes when I brought my alabaster jar to the feet of Jesus, the prized possession to my life, the thing that's dominating my thinking, my thoughts, and it doesn't have to be physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it's spiritual. Whatever it is, that dominant playing thing in the middle of my heart, perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's an illness. Perhaps it's a difficulty. Perhaps it's a marriage. Perhaps it's a child. Whatever it is, that one thing. Every time I've come to bring my greatest offering to Jesus, here's what I find happens time and time again. There are voices around me that will try to stop me from doing it. Every time. Voices around me that will try to stop me doing it. Heck, we don't even have to go to our greatest offering. We can go to some of our smallest offerings. There has been so many times where I've walked in on a Sunday morning just wanting to bring my offering of the week, my short part of thoughts of prayers and pray and worship and and suddenly I'm on the front row here and I'm worshipping and some voices come into my head that want even that small offering to stop going to God, that small offering to stop going to Jesus. Things like, oh man, I don't like this song. Oh, it's a bit bit cold in here, isn't it? Or what about that one that always plagues me of... What are we having for lunch after this? <laughs> Is that just me? Or? <laughs> Probably just me. <laughs> Suddenly, the offering that I'm bringing to God, voices started to appear around me to stop me from bringing the thing that I was actually designed to bring to the person of Jesus Christ. Voices of doubt, voices of comfort, voices of the world, Friends, can I encourage you and implore you this morning to ignore every voice that comes to you to stop you from bringing your greatest offering to Christ? When there is a risk involved and when something is starting to come your way, can I encourage you to silence the voices in your head that will stop you from bringing your best to God. Anything that comes against the risk, anything that comes against the act of faith, anything that comes against you from risking something and bringing something to Jesus, not because you want to be seen, not because you want to be good, but because we have a Jesus that is worth every element of offering that we can bring. And when the voices come and plague our minds, internal voices, voices of the mind, or even external voices, voices of people and voices around us. Learn the spiritual discipline of silencing the voices that will move you closer to Jesus and speak the name of Jesus to them. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you and I move towards the one who has created every fiber in my being, the one who is worthy of the praise, the one who I should bring my offering to, the one who is willing and worthy of the best I can bring. I will speak to the voices and I will bring the greatest offering I can. And here we have Mary and she does just That. She doesn't stop, she continues. And here's what we learn a little point for you. I believe at the heart of worship, a key principle is generosity. Generosity is at the heart of worship. Question What are you willing to waste for Him? It's not always easy to be generous just like Mary realized. And it doesn't always make sense. But when you have seen God do what Mary has seen God do, it becomes a whole lot easier. I want to encourage you to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God in the small time that you have followed him so far and allow those things to be the driving force of your generous gift to the person of Jesus. Believe me here, when you recognize and hold on to the truth of what dead things Jesus has brought to life in your life and those sat around you right now, giving away in generosity no longer becomes as difficult. Because what is an expensive perfume that costs thousands of pounds in comparison to a dead life that is now alive? Jesus looks at her and he says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. You know, our posture should always be to see the beauty of Jesus merge with our reality. And we can and will do things that Jesus looks at and says they're beautiful. So often in my life, I struggle to grasp my head around this concept because we're prone as humans to see the flaws in our lives, right? Is, anyone else tr- is that true to you, Right? We're prone to see the difficulties and the, and the flaws, and I think the media's got a lot of things to say for that, if I'm completely honest. We, we are prone, as comparison, to be able to compare our lives to other people and to be able to spot our blind sides that no one else sees, our difficulties, our tendencies to do things wrong, and we compare them to that which is good around us. There's a famous preacher that once says that actually social media is like comparing our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. And that's so often what it's like in our lives. We compare our behind-the-scenes, the the clutter, the things that no one else has seen, and we compare them to someone else's highlight reel, the the things that they're willing to project for people to see. And what an amazing thought and truth that even within that concept that we see ourselves through our flaws so often, that Jesus looks at us and he says these words, this person has done a beautiful thing to me. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning that when Jesus sees some of your actions and he sees some of your devotions and he sees some of your care and he sees some of your generosity and he sees your heart and he sees your worship and on a Sunday morning when you come in here with the whole world against you and you're willing to lift up your hands to praise the name of Jesus, Jesus does not look at his children with anger. He looks at them and he says this, they have done a beautiful thing for me. Some of you, even as I'm saying those words now, you're fighting against it. In your heads, you're thinking, not me. If only you would know, Sean, what what I've done this week. If only you would know what I've done in my life this year. If you would only know the difficulties and tensions and sins and mistakes I've made that plague my mind from years and years ago, you wouldn't be saying those words. Friends, I am saying those words in spite of those things. Jesus looks at you and he sees beauty. How can I say that? Because the cross said it was finished. And everything that's happened in your life, past, present, or future, has a final mark. And the final mark is the works of Jesus. What does the Father see when he looks at Jesus? He sees beauty. And when the Father looks at us, he looks at us through the perfection of Jesus Christ. So he sees beauty. So here's Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to come to a close in a moment. She looks up and he looks back. And amidst all the allegations and all the noise and all the voices aiming to disrupt the heart and posture of Mary's worship, Jesus looks back and he says, look at, this, what, look at what this woman has brought to me. What she has done is beautiful. So today, as we sit at the feet of Jesus, as we worship, as we sing, as we come together as family and we aim to just give an offering to God, What does Jesus see? He sees married couples who long to have children but can't right now. He sees the husbands and wives who have lost their greatest loved ones over the last few years. He sees the teenagers who are without friends and feel oh so lonely. He sees the medics who are wanting to throw in the towel so much right now. He sees those ones who are holding that doctor's note and desperately praying for change. He sees the mums who are right now tired and find that their hope is wavering. He sees the dads who are feeling the weight and pressures of life weigh on their shoulders. He sees the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers and the CEOs. He sees the grandparents who are just trying their best. He sees his people, his family. He sees a bride awaiting the groom. He sees a vine attached to a branch. He sees a family of broken people who are healing and growing. He sees the hope of the world, a light in the darkness. He sees warriors with battle scars just trying to walk through these murky waters. He sees the people willing to bring their alabaster jar of offering and to lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, All that I have, I give to you. Why the waste? Because he's worth it. He's so worth it. So kind and compassionate. So caring and loving. So gentle and peaceful. Why the waste? Because he's worth it. Band, would you join me on the stage? This alabaster jar would have been like a vase shape. And the top would have been sealed. and It wouldn't have had any entrance or opening into it. In fact, they made it and then they often put the perfume inside, the most expensive perfume they have at the time, and then they seal it completely up. So it means that often when you use it, you use it at what it will be, perhaps your most memorable moment in life. Perhaps it's your wedding day or something along those lines. And here is Mary who has got this alabaster jar. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous jar and many people have seen it around her neck as she's walked and suddenly here it is, broken to pieces on the floor. She's snapped off the top and she's allowed the fragrance to start pouring out in the room. You know, sometimes our greatest acts of worship will come from a place of brokenness. Sometimes our greatest acts of worship aren't when everything's going well. And they aren't when everything's going together. And they aren't when life seems like it's really good right now. Sometimes, just like this vase, this replicating. Our greatest act of worship will come from a place of brokenness. Can I say, church, please don't be afraid in this house to break some things off your life. This house should never be a place of performance. In fact, I rebuke anything of performance from this place. We're not here to perform. It never has been about that. It never should be about that. And it never hopefully will be about that. What is it about? It's about us bringing our offering every single week. It's about us bringing our offering every single day. And even in the brokenness and even in the pain, we can still bring something that I believe Jesus looks at and he sees as beautiful. And here is a woman that's willing to break her most prized possession in front of Jesus because she doesn't want anything to have a greater priority than Jesus in her heart and in her life. And she's willing to break it. Don't be scared to allow things to be broken in your heart and in your mind in this place. We don't have to come here and look good when we worship on a Sunday morning. We don't have to be good. We don't have to feel good. We don't have to sound good. This is a place where it should be okay to be vulnerable. Why? Because God meets us wherever we find ourselves at. And whatever offering we can bring to him this day, whatever offering we can bring to him tomorrow and on Tuesday and on Wednesday, on Thursday, if our heart is just saying, Jesus, I want you to be the highest priority in my life. I believe he looks at it and he says that it's beautiful. Worship has never been about the songs that we sing. It's always been about the posture of our heart. Worship has never been about our physical posture and what we're doing with our body. It's always been about our spiritual posture, saying, Jesus, I want you to be the center of my life. I want you to be the greatest priority above everything that's going on in my life right now. Take the highest seat. I bring everything that's my most prized possession and I lay it at your feet. I'm willing to break it open for you. Friends, we're big enough in the same room to be able to have tears and joy because Jesus meets us where we are. He comes and he sees our offering, and he's willing to say to it that it's beautiful. The Bible says that he leads us beside quiet waters, and he what? He restores our soul because of whatever we bring to him with a pure heart. Jesus sees the beauty of. So when she poured the, pos- the perfume on her uh, onto Jesus, she did it to prepare him for his burial. You need know, sometimes our worship is often prophetic preparation and we have no idea that we're going through it. Sometimes when we're worshipping we don't realise that we're preparing our hearts and our souls for that which is around the corner. Sometimes when we're bringing our offering we don't know that our offering is actually going to be the greatest setup to what is a move of God. A few days later after this moment after Mary's greatest offering at the feet of Jesus what did Jesus do? You can read it in Matthew 27. He gets on the donkey and he rides and they declare, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a few days later, they change the words of cries of Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. And then on that cross, he shouts out with a loud voice, it is finished. And then three days later, he raises by the same spirit that lives in us now in victorious fashion, he declares himself as the king of the world, the coming Messiah, the Lord of Lords sometimes our greatest offering can be the platform in which Jesus does the greatest miracle. Church, would you stand with me as we come to an end? I want to encourage you this morning as we end. Why the waste? Why the waste? Why the waste? Because he's worth it this morning. He's worth every waste of our life. He's worth every waste of our time. He's worth every waste of our devotion. He's worth the waste of everything we can bring. And as the world looks at us and they say it's a waste, we know that nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God because we see of for God who is the great recycler He recycles our pain and He does wonderful things with it. He recycles our misery and He creates ministry. He recycles our disturbances and He comes and brings incredible miracles through it. So whatever your life looks like today, whatever your life has looked like this last week, whatever you're going into in the coming days, I want to implore you and I want to encourage you to fix your eyes in the person of Jesus and to bring the greatest offering that you can bring, an offering of a life laid down, saying, I surrender it all. Take the highest seat in my heart be number one. Just in this moment, I'm going to give you a couple of seconds. I know you're already engaging. But without any songs or anything like that, I want you to think, what's the offering, the spirit is encouraging you to bring to him today.